This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. On today's show, Ian Paisley Jr. told us why he loves motorbikes. We also asked foreign correspondents what they thought about the way that Britain is seen around the world. But in today's episode, we take a look at what it's really like to work in Downing Street and why Boris Johnson might be trying to move his office elsewhere. Boris Johnson is leaving number 10. No, not like that. He remains in power, of course, but he is looking at moving his office out of Downing Street as part of efforts to beef up his control across Whitehall departments. Last week, the Prime Minister turned up in the Cabinet Office's Economic and Domestic Affairs Secretariat, uh, where Dominic Cummings has already been seen uh, waving a rolled-up floor plan of the building, marching around, measuring the curtains, indeed. It's a bit of a turnaround because earlier this year, I reported in The Times that Dominic Cummings had tried to move the PM out of his number 10 den into a NASA-style command and control centre in Number 12 Downing Street, uh, into the same room, in fact, where Gordon Brown had created his own horseshoe-shaped bunker. And Boris Johnson refused to budge. But with coronavirus revealing the shortcomings of the government machine, apparently the PM is now ready to think the unthinkable and may well move out of Number 10, or at least uh, move uh, his offices and some of his team. Number 10, of course, is a strange mix of the Prime Minister's home, office and official residence for entertaining world leaders. In a moment, we'll hear from two former Downing Street officials about what it's like to work behind that famous black door and previous attempts to modernise the PM's working conditions. But first, I've been speaking to Jack Brown, former historian in residence in Downing Street, about how the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland ended up working in a pokey terrace house. It is a pokey terrace house, I will accept that, but it's a wonderful pokey terrace house. Short answer to your question is through complete accident, really. Downing Street houses were built in the 1680s by a guy called Sir George Downing, who was a uh, a diplomat, is the nice way of putting it. He was a, a spy later on, he was a, a serial traitor, not a guy who's got a great reputation. Built the houses very cheaply, to a low standard, and the idea was that he was going to turn a profit, um, rent them out or have people live in them you know, who were uh, no one in particular, you know, anyone who would pay. They weren't meant to be the home of uh, anyone particularly special, but wouldn't have even been dreamed of that they'd be the home of the British Prime Minister when they're constructed. However, when Downing dies, just shortly after he uh, started constructing the houses, again in the 1680s, um, the land reverts back to the crown. 
and in the early 1700s, the king decides to give the land uh, and the property to his favourite minister. At the time, there was no such thing as a prime minister, and this guy even denied explicitly being a prime minister because it was seen as a sort of an insult in a collective system of government. There wasn't meant to be one person who was the prime minister, but he clearly was the prime minister. It's a guy called Sir Robert Walpole, um, and the king gives him the property. He decides to accept it only in his official capacity as First Lord of the Treasury, um, which is a role that in modern times is synonymous with that of Prime Minister. So that's how it comes to comes to be. Um, mostly, the reason why Walpole only accepted it in his official capacity um, was because he didn't want to pay for the for the repairs that were necessary. And so when he accepts it as part of the job, he gets the state to pay for it. Um, and ever since then, we've been trying to fix it. <laughs> Very, very wise. And uh, and uh, before we get to the, the various states of repairs that, it, that it's gotten in the past, there's also 10 Downing Street, the, perhaps one of the most famous doors in the world. 11 Downing Street is where the, the uh, Chancellor obviously lives. Uh, 12 Downing Street uh, has traditionally been where the Whips live, has since been taken over by the press office. But where is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8? Gone, in effect. The, uh, it was a whole row of terrace houses that were kind of knocked together. Like I said, uh, number 10 itself was knocked together with a house at the back, which is much more impressive. Um, so number 10 goes back a lot further than you, you would uh, expect if you're looking from Downing Street at that famous front door, whereas numbers 11 and 12 don't. But the rest of the houses have all been all kind of long gone. Um, you have 70 Whitehall next door now, which is where the Cabinet Office is based. And... Um, where I believe uh, Mr Cummins has been spotted wandering around, right, checking it out for a potential move. That links to number 10 internally through a really famous Green Bay's door that splits the Prime Minister's office from the Cabinet office. And that's kind of, historically, that's been a really important distinction. And what about the building itself? It fell into a state of disrepair, didn't it, back in the 60s? Well, ever since it was constructed, Matt, um, like I say, it's two houses knocked together, number 10, um, and... I mentioned earlier, you know, Walpole um, not wanting to pay for that himself. But there's something called the Great Repair that happens just a couple of uh, decades after Walpole moved in. And there's a kind of series of bodge jobs and repairs around the edges of the building ever since it becomes home and office to the Prime Minister. It's particularly in a bad state after the Second World War and there's some bomb damage done that doesn't help things, um, including a, a barrage um, balloon, you know, so, um, which takes, get cuts loose and takes some of the tiles off the roof. So there's a bit of friendly fire there as well. But the, the place is falling apart on its own accord um, and it's in the 60s that it gets so dangerous that there's a serious risk that the cabinet might be meeting one day and the cabinet table will go through the floor. They're paying someone full time to be on on site as a fire safety officer because it's catching light left, right, and centre. And uh, they've got an on site carpenter because the walls uh, keep moving about so much that sometimes you can't open some of the doors or windows. So it's in a really bad state by the sixties, and that's when they when they decide to rebuild it. Uh, the front of the house as well was a bit precarious, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, the the, uh, the the most of the walls and the floors are kind of out of true, you know, um, built in, on shaky foundations on marshy land. It all kind of moves about quite a lot. But uh, the front wall is basically falling over into Downing Street. The top is a lot closer <laughs> to Downing Street than the bottom. So it's kind of leaning forwards. It looks like the house is going to fall over. Um, I'm not sure if you can physically see that, but um, you, if you measure it, it's, it's quite alarming. So it's a good idea to rebuild it then, even though 
you know, we're British and we don't want to um, interfere with history, but, you know, you also can't have the Prime Minister uh, burning to death in the building. And then what happened? Obviously, Prime Ministers, politicians, they hate to be seen to be spending money on themselves. It gets delayed and delayed and delayed. But eventually, um, the work is done. How does that work go? It runs substantially over time and over budget. Um, it's hit by strikes as well. Macmillan doesn't want to be seen. Macmillan is the Prime Minister at the time, doesn't want to be seen to be spending a huge amount of money on it. And also doesn't want to go out for a survey. So he has them survey it over a weekend and they can't really properly investigate. And when they start uh, the building works, they realise, God, this place is in a worse state than even we, you know, than our worst nightmares. It is literally falling apart. Almost every building job that's ever happened in history, at some point, the builder declares it's much worse than we thought. And uh, what happened with the famous outside of the building? Because obviously the, the, the image that everyone is picturing right now is the famous black doll and the walls are black all around. But why is that? Yeah, well, if you look at photos from sort of the 1920s, early, early 20th century, you'll see that the walls are effectively black, but it looks a bit um, inconsistent. And this is because they're black with soot. And this is just a classic feature of, of a London townhouse at the time. London, very sort of a smoggy, gritty, dirty place. Uh, and when they rebuilt it, they, they discovered that this was in fact soot and it was not a deliberate move. But they decided, OK, sort of homage to that legacy. We're going to paint it black. And it actually looks quite deliberately and quite, quite beautifully um, black now. The building itself is very higgledy-piggledy. It's got all these add-ons and different bits. And then you've got this building at the end that's a different colour. It really sort of conveys the historical nature of it, the fact that it is, um, like the British Constitution in some ways, just kind of a case of muddling through and making little adaptations here and there as you go. You know, I think there is something particularly, particularly British about that. And so how has it changed on the inside? How have Prime Ministers adapted it to suit them? Historically, the Prime Minister would work in the Cabinet Room. Uh, uh, well, certainly in the, in the post-war years, this was true. And next door, you'd have your private secretaries, and they would uh, basically be the funnel for all your information. Everything ends up in there in trays, and then it works its way through that kind of filtration process into the, uh, into the Prime Minister's uh, bed boxes. And that's kind of how it's, it's always worked. But um, Tony Blair moved next door moved out of the cabinet room and moved next door. Some prime ministers have preferred to work upstairs, um, slightly further away from the civil service and from their advisors. So, But in terms of like how prime ministers left their uh, personality on the building, I mean, Thatcher's the one that you can see the most of, other than Churchill. Um, Churchill has two portraits in there. There's a grand staircase that's really famous, lined with all the portraits of former prime ministers, and Churchill's the only one uh, who has two. Um, but uh, Thatcher was someone who was there for long enough and at the right time that she could um, change some of the, de the decor. And so there's a very blingy room upstairs used for entertaining where Thatcher's influence can be seen because she, she felt it should be a bit grander. She felt that if you're entertaining, um, I won't name any names, but a world leader, um, there were world leaders that she liked more than others, but that they should be a little bit intimidated, really. They should be like, wow, Britain a serious country they shouldn't be uh walking around going oh this is very humble um i respect you very much for that but you know i'm not very intimidated uh she 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 projected the sort of she used it to project power and that's that's something you can still see in in some of the state rooms upstairs um but i guess you kind of you make it work one of the things that's incredible about number 10 it is very small 
and the kind of office around the Prime Minister in terms of the staff, but also who you have access to, has kind of shaped to fit the building over the years. And that's why if, if there is to be a move away from number 10 at some point in the future, you could, it could have potentially quite a direct and interesting ramifications for the type of centre that we have at, at the heart of government, of the type of office the Prime Minister has, and of how they actually run their government. So much of it comes from the fact that you've got this tiny little building with this weird layout that's the result of hundreds of years of minor adaptations here and there to stop it falling apart. Um, and, you know, if we were to change that, we, it would be in a big moment of change, actually, for the way that we're, we're governed. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. That's another chap Brown there, whose book Number 10, The Geography of Power at Danish Street, is a really brilliant and fascinating guide to the history and workings of the building. So let's now talk to two people who've worked in Number 10 and know what it's really like. Jonathan Powell was Chief of Staff for, to Tony Blair for his entire decade as Prime Minister. Uh, morning, Jonathan. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. And Gabby Burton, now Baroness Burton, was Press Secretary and later Director of External Relations for David Cameron. Morning, Gabby. Good morning. Uh, Gabby, uh, start us first of all. What's it like going into number 10 as a place of work? Well, it's obviously kind of amazing, really. You, you get to walk up the road to that the mo- one of the most famous addresses probably in the world, um, aside from the White House. You get to go behind the black door and you have a desk, as Jack Brown said, in one of the most historic buildings um, uh, there is. And so it is... Um, rather marvellous but on the face of it um it's very prestigious but obviously in like with so many things in life the reality is a little bit less so I can remember having to lift my feet up to let the mice go by um and I was one of the lucky ones I was above ground you know so many um people were working in in offices that were once you know cupboards under the stairs so so it's right that it's a it's a pretty rambling office and I have no um there's no doubt in my mind that the reason why coronavirus spread to so many important people in government is because you cannot socially distance in in number 10 it's just too um 
it's too close a, a, an environment. Is that your experience as well, Jonathan, a weird place to work? Yeah, it's completely inappropriate place to try and run a government from. I, I suggested when we first moved in, actually, back in 97, that we should not move in at all, but go to the QE2 centre and try and work out of there. We had people working out of bathrooms, people stacked five to a tiny room. It's just really uh, daft to try and uh, administer a government from a building that was not made for that at all. So talk us through yeah, this idea of, of moving the, the operations to the QET, QE2 conference centre, which is a short walk from Downshire. How would that have worked in, in practice? Would it become a sort of essentially like a, a whole new government department, the department of the Prime Minister? Well, you wouldn't need to necessarily change its departmental structure at all. You just uh, rent, uh, QE2 centre belongs to the government. You just rent a floor of that and make that where you do your office. You can have open plan offices. You have an office for the prime minister. It would just make life a whole lot easier. But I never got very far because uh, prime ministers always like to work out of that and like to have the um, number 10 front door for people to go through. I remember we looked at moving out again because the building became completely unsustainable Later on in Tony Blair's time, the building inspectors came to us saying the electric riser was about to burst into flames. So much power was coming through it that uh, they couldn't guarantee the building. So we started looking at moving out. And of course, this was towards the end. And Gordon Brown was looking forward to moving in. And he absolutely vetoed us doing any moving out because he thought it was a coup to stop him ever being able to occupy (laughs) number 10. But we stayed on despite the danger. Too much power in number 10 uh, is, is often yeah. a complaint, but not so literally coming through the electric wires. Uh, G- Gabby, did... I mean, we, we, try, we try to do something much less ambitious. We, we try to actually move back to, as Jack Brown said, getting um, the Prime Minister out of this tiny little den that they, they work out of um, and up to one of the state rooms. Um, and that proved the bill came in for that. And because it's a listed building, of course, it was huge. And we were about to, to do, uh, as, as you know, a, a big austerity drive. And we thought that it just wouldn't, um, wouldn't go down well. But I think this is a huge opportunity and that they probably should take it. Not least because there's so much talk now about how we need much more joined up government. Government works in silos. We know that putting the pandemic aside, the big societal issues that we're trying to sort of tackle, be it knife crime, domestic abuse, you need to have a sort of a proper cross government approach and if you were to redesign how government was run from the centre then you have half a chance of actually doing that for real rather than just talking about it. Is now the time in the middle of a crisis the time to do that though Jonathan? It's a, there's a risk isn't there of sort of trying to solve a problem it's, it's difficult to solve a problem when you're in the middle of the problem. Yeah you can't I don't see how you could move out in the middle of the coronavirus crisis they've already made such a horlicks of it that they won't want to do something that makes things even worse so I doubt they would seriously do that and I suppose that's why they're looking at trying to expand into the cabinet office because the cabinet office is joined on you talk about a green bay's door but it's actually an electronic door and you can actually have multiple doors if you wanted into the cabinet office and again we looked at trying in fact we did put some of our units into the cabinet office but the cabinet secretary regularly resists uh, in very strong terms and tries to hang on to his turf and the cabinet office minister mm. likewise is not keen <laughs> to give up his uh, grand office gabby talked about how small the den the prime minister works from it's a lot bigger than where we put tony first when we moved in in 1997 we had tony working in the old marcia forkender room which is a tiny room that looks over the garden we couldn't think where else to put it but there was no way of stopping people going in and out there's no room outside it, no place for a desk and people just wander in so we eventually moved him into the private secretary's room which now become the den Mrs Thatcher and Harold Wilson both worked upstairs, what we call the boudoir, which is a very sort of um, elaborate room with its own uh, toilet at the end of the room. 
but uh, we didn't want to provide. We also looked at moving Tony into the white room, one of those um, state rooms. But again, we couldn't see how it could be done and what would you do when you're entertaining there. It's really a very difficult building to work your way mm. around. But, but Jonathan's right. You could, um, the fact that the Cabinet Office and Number 10 are so close, and essentially they are the same building, because one of the things that we should have done, and actually I think David Cameron regrets doing it, is not making the Cabinet Office and Number 10 work closer together, because you would avoid, they, they are two seats of power, as Jonathan says, and, and if you brought them together, actually, there would be a more effective government generally. There wouldn't be two two um, heads of the snake, as it were. They, they, they would probably do things better. Just to talk us through the, the bay's door, because someone, someone's actually just texted in saying that the, the crucial thing about the door that connects the number 10 to the cabinet office is that number 10 staff has a, have a pass, which means they can go through, but cabinet office staff don't, and they have to walk round and go up the road. <laughs> is that right? You can, you can get trapped in that. It's like a sort of plastic, you know, you kind of go into the, you, you go into a sort of... Um, like in the Austin Powers film, and occasionally your pass doesn't work, and 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 you can sort of find yourself sort of stuck in the, the security to let you out. <laughs> and it, um, it, so yeah, sorry. No, I was going to say. So is it is it so um, sort of hotly contested? You know, who who gets to go through which door, and you know who's got the best office? All that stuff really does matter, even even with the people at the top of to the top of the tree. Matters particularly to them. It's, um, <laughs> yes. I, I mean, you, you just have to look at yes, prime minister and yes, minister, which is all about that. So, particularly yes, prime minister, obviously, and it's the same thing now. As Robin Butler used to say, yes, prime minister is actually a documentary, not a, a comedy at all. Uh, when we moved into number ten in ninety seven, the crucial question was where people sit because proximity mm. to the prime minister is power. So everyone wanted to sit next to him, and you have to persuade some people that maybe the policy unit doesn't have to be right next door; it has to be a bit further away. Maybe the press office needs to be further away, and so on. Um, and it's, it really becomes quite an elaborate negotiation. Unless you do it when you first move in, uh, it's absolutely impossible. It's a bit like security council seats, permanent seats in security council. You can't get rid of people once they're on there. Uh, and it's the same once you've got them in an office; they're going to fight to the death. You'll actually literally yes, have to pull no, out you, with you their discover, fingernails. It's the Germans sort of, uh, you know, towels on the desk. I mean, it was quite, you, I can remember people were putting their shoes underneath desks to try and reserve them and all the rest of it. So it does get a bit undignified. Was that Steve Hilton? Was he? Uh... Uh, well, no, he, he was sort of obviously took a totally different approach. Actually, the thing that Steve tried to do when he first came in, which caused outrage and nearly a massive walkout, was he wanted to reform the lovely cafe, which is probably the most secure cafe in, in the world, which is um, in the basement of number 10. And, um, he wanted to turn it into something ridiculous, like a smoothie bar, and and that that there was absolutely no way he was getting that. So. That didn't exist when we moved in. There was no way you could get food in Downing Street at all. It was absolutely impossible. So we had to actually build that at one stage. So there was some food. People used oh, well, to well go done. out. Well done. Have... That was a great addition, Jonathan. <laughs> Probably the greatest innovation we made. Yeah, the uh, in government. The the we used to try and do things like order pizza. When I had Sinn Fein in negotiating, we try and order pizza, but the security people had to check the pizza so carefully that it was cold by the time it came in. It's really hard to get food, and of course, the government marches on its stomach, so it's very hard to run. And looking looking ahead in terms of you know Boris Johnson trying to rethink and and taking over the cabinet office and all that all that sort of thing, does it matter being in the building that, that people? know so well like you said it's the most famous address it's the most famous door meeting people on the steps of down street is so important rather than going into a sort of um you know slightly plainer um you know modern office environment does it matter where where people are making those decisions well i think if jonathan's right i mean if the prime minister's in the cabinet office in a in a rather sort of modern glass 
you know, walled building and that's where everyone wants to be. And suddenly it's the sort of the place where nobody wants to be in number 10 if, if the power shifted. So I think that's probably a, a, a hurdle you can get over. But it's probably not Boris Johnson, a man who loves his history, who will be the, um, the biggest roadblock to it, I imagine. Do you think the same yeah, the problem's also the door. It's, people want to go through the front door. So it doesn't, in a way, it's rather funny. You could move the office almost anywhere as long as you had to go through the front door of Downing Street. <laughs> That's where world leaders want to be photographed. But of course, there's no um, question that world leaders wouldn't meet. You'd have a sort of uh, a phony office, as it were, in number 10. And you, you'd, of course, welcome world leaders. It would still exist. You, but you could just have all the sort of the, the people working in another place. Um, I think I think there are quite a few European countries that do that. <laughs> yeah, you you come in through the door, then you have a sort of twenty minute walk uh, round uh, round the the corridors before you get. But to you the still Again, you we, still we have, have the, the meetings. Yes, yeah. sorry. We actually did look at trying to do that when we had to have the building works, so that we could just have a long corridor. But the trouble was, then the security people get upset about having to bring the prime minister from somewhere else to the meetings there, and you'd break up the prime minister's day in such a way you couldn't get any work done. So there are all sorts of problems when you start to look at this in practice. Uh, just, yes, because remember, the Prime Minister has an office in, in Parliament as well. So so you're right, you don't want too many different bases, otherwise you spend your life sort of just travelling around. Yeah, leaving leaving paperwork in the wrong in the in the wrong <laughs> office and that sort of thing. What's the what's the what's the best and worst thing then about working in number ten, Gabby? Oh my goodness. The, well, I mean, look, the best is that you, you have an opportunity if you do your job right to, to, um, to actually make a difference. The question mark whether how much difference you make, but, um, you are sitting in history. I mean, I used to love being, you know, the phrase, if these walls could talk is never so true as in, in number 10. Um, I mean, the worst, I suppose, is never being able to try and find anyone. If I, if you try and sort of have a face to face with someone just, you know, on the off chance without organizing a meeting, because it is such a rabbit warren, you can walk, I can remember being heavily pregnant, practically giving birth at the top of sort of several flights of stairs trying to find this person only to discover they were downstairs in the cafe. So, um, it's just, as Jonathan said at the beginning, it's not, it's not really a functional office at all because it's, it's just too much of a rabbit warren. Jonathan, is that the worst worst part of the building? No, the worst part of the building is try, when we moved Tony into the old private office, uh, we then had to move out into what was called the duty clerk's room, which is sort of next to it, the outer private office. And you have it takes some imagination to imagine quite how antiquated that is. You have a duty clerk sitting at one end of the room, <laughs> as an official who's there the whole time, and a little wooden um, dumb waiter. And all the papers come in downstairs to what we call the garden rooms. And they're brought up by this dumb waiter by a hand pulley into the room. And then you've got six people sitting there because everyone wants to sit next to the prime minister. And you have to have the diary secretary and the foreign affairs advisor wants to be there. And it's almost impossible to work in those circumstances. How can you have a private conversation or how can you <laughs> um, really think? So that's the problem. It's the sort of all being squeezed in together. And you get the same thing in the White House where everyone wants to be in the West Wing not in the old executive office building. You can have an office the size of a tennis court in the old executive office building or, or a broom cupboard under the stairs in, in the White House, and they all want to be in the White House. The best thing about the place is the garden. Tony Blair was a sun worshipper and loved to have meetings out there, sitting in the sun, uh, staring up at the sun. And he used to particularly inflict it on the poor old unionists. So when the unionists would come in, David Trimble, etc., very buttoned up in three-piece suits, they would have to sit sweltering in the sun while he sunned himself, uh, trying to persuade them to sign up to an agreement with Sinn Féin. But their garden has a lot of going for it. And of yeah. course, now, nowadays, maybe, maybe you know, given social distance and all that, holding all the meetings in, in the garden would make much more sense. Never mind moving the office of the cabinet office. Listen, I could speak to you for ages about this. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for that. It was Jonathan Powell, uh, former chief of staff to Tony Blair, and Gabby Burton, who was press secretary and later 
Director of External Relations with David Cameron, talking us through this idea of of Boris Johnson potentially moving his offices out of Downing Street and into the Cabinet Office. Um, uh, Dominic Cummings marching around with a floor plan of the offices uh, as he sort of measures up the curtains to to make all that happen. Because it turns out, trying to run a government from a sort of slightly pokey rabbit warren of uh, corridors and a terraced uh, house in London doesn't always work. Um, but in the end, people just want to be as close to the, the, the guy in charge as, as much as possible. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.